what it takes, the kinds of leadership skills, and we think of them as post-hero uh, leadership skills, where it's not the person at the top saying, come go with me. It's the person at the top saying, come go with me, here's where we're going, but it's your talent, your expertise, your commitment to our students, to your disciplines, to our enterprise that is going to make this work work. And so that is, I think, the hardest work of leading change is distributing and developing leadership at multiple levels to empower true co-ownership for the work. Hello, and welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Dr. Melissa Morris Olson. Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with leading-edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious You is a production of Chelip, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about Chelip, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash Chelip. This is Melissa Morris Olson, and I am your host for this episode of Ingenious You. I'm thrilled to have as our guest today, Dr. Allison Cadlick, a founding partner of the higher ed consulting group, SOVA. Allison is an expert in building cultures and climates for innovation in higher education. She has worked with literally dozens of colleges and universities across the country to support the capacity of leaders and faculty at every level to effectively engage members of their communities in the hard work of change on behalf of student success. Allison and her team also work with the U.S. Department of Education, state policymakers, and system leaders in more than half the states in our country to help improve the quality of policy development and implementation around higher education and workforce issues. Before launching SOVA, Allison served as Senior Vice President at Public Agenda. She also has been a faculty member in the Political Science Department at McAllister College at the University of Minnesota, Baruch College, and Hunter College. Allison is the author of a book on the democratic theory of John Dewey, Dewey's Critical Pragmatism. She is the author, also the author or co-author of a number of articles on subjects related to stakeholder engagement and public deliberation, both within and outside of higher education. She holds a PhD in political science from the University of Minnesota and BAs from Michigan State University in political theory, constitutional democracy, and English literature. 
Allison, we are so happy to have you on our podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Melissa. It's a pleasure to be here. So let me start. Why don't we jump right in? I'd like to ask you how SOVA came into being. Your website says that SOVA was founded by the daughter of a refugee of war and the fifth generation son of Kentucky dairy farmers, an unlikely partnership on the surface. So can you tell our listeners what the inspiration was for SOVA and what's the significance of your name? Absolutely. Uh, So SOVA is about four years old and uh, I'm the daughter of the refugee of war and my partner in crime at SOVA is Paul Markham and he is the fifth generation son of Kentucky dairy farmers and the first in his family to go to college. Uh, And we joined forces. We both have backgrounds as faculty members uh, and administrators in his case. We also have backgrounds in community organizing, deliberative democracy, and we had uh, crossed paths many times and collaborated in various ways over the years while I was at Public Agenda and he was at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, leading a student success portfolio there, uh, and then was at Achieving the Dream. And we joined forces because of a shared uh, commitment to improving the lives of working people through access uh, and success in higher education and workforce and from being inside institutions and working on community uh, community building community dialogues and collaborative problem solving projects over the years we came to uh, we came to the shared uh, conviction or shared conclusion that the place that change uh, falls apart in practice so evidence-based strong positive change falls apart in practice is really around the human side of things. And so uh, we focus specifically on uh, improving processes, improving uh, the quality of collaboration, the uh, quality of uh, climate and culture within institutions. And so we really want to focus on the human side of change and uh, supporting a better human problem solving. And so SOVA uh, means OWL in Czech, and it is a nod both to my uh, father and to Paul's rural roots. And it's a reminder to us that ultimately all wisdom is practical and that uh, it is through the insights and creative commitment of people at multiple levels in institutions and in our society that we'll be able to solve problems more effectively together. Mm, boy, and how timely for today. Yes, and indeed. All that are, are, right? Yeah. Now, so much of the work that you do with colleges and universities, as you have said, does indeed focus on building the culture and climate for supporting organizational change efforts. That being said, I've heard you say that you don't like the um, you don't actually like the term change management, uh, which uh, I think is uh, I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that in terms of what it is that you don't like about the term change management. But you've worked on college campuses. And so you know how how difficult it is indeed to create lasting change. So uh, I'd be interested in knowing why, from your perspective, your experience, why is this? Why is change so difficult, particularly in higher education? What gets in the way? And what what can leaders do about it? Right. Well, those are a lot of excellent questions. And I, there's so many directions I want to go in this. I'll start by just saying that uh, the reason that I'm not a huge fan of the term change management is I think it inappropriately signals a kind of simplicity that the work, typically change management is a 
field of practice in the private uh, sector in which a discrete training program or a discrete something is being implemented in a, a highly structured command and control kind of environment. And so you're managing the implementation of a discrete change in an environment uh, that is carefully structured and in which there is a clear hierarchy um, of uh, decision-making and authority. The problem with that is, and that phrase always rubs us wrong, that what it actually takes to do this work to in fact make sustainable change based in evidence for dramatically improved outcomes and closed equity gaps for students requires more than tacit acceptance, tacit buy-in. It requires active creative commitment on the part of faculty, staff, and others at you know, multiple levels of the institution. And so what it takes, the kinds of leadership skills, and we think of them as post-hero uh, leadership skills, where it's not the person at the top saying, come go with me. It's the person at the top saying, come go with me. Here's where we're going. But it's your talent, your expertise, your commitment to our students to your disciplines, to our enterprise that is going to make this work work. And so that is, I think, the hardest work of leading change is distributing and developing leadership at multiple levels to empower true co-ownership for the work. In, indeed, and you've worked on a college campus, so you, you, you know from firsthand experience just how hard it is to get anything to stick given, Absolutely. The, range given the range of constituencies that you have, each with its own agenda and the competing interests, right? Absolutely. And this is why that kind of clear leadership vision and set of expectations for uh, how the institution will function, most higher education institutions in this country historically, that work of silo spanning in order to create mm -hmm. common ground on which people with just, you know, diverse or disparate interests um, or orientations to the institution can stand together and say, yes, we share these priorities and this is how I fit into this and I can see how sure. you fit into this and I can see what we need to be doing together. That's the work that, you know, that's part of what is profoundly countercultural about student success work. But it's also, you know, we see where the institutions that are doing this work well, they find it profoundly satisfying work as well. Mm. Well, so let's let's drill down a little bit to this current climate. So it is hard enough to do what you're suggesting needs to be done under normal circumstances, if if normal is is even a relevant term these days. But yeah. but the times in which we're living are anything but but that. So are there any takeaways or lessons to be learned from this current time of uncertainty and crisis that that people can uh, use as we look to the future? Absolutely. So I, one of the things that we're seeing as we, and we have over the last couple of months as the pandemic has uh, really hit this country and uh, higher education has been rattled to its core and institutions have rallied in that sort of search and rescue phase to put all of their, convert all of their programs online to serve and support students, to uh, distribute emergency aid to the most vulnerable among students to try to close uh, some of the more glaring equity gaps uh, around access to technology and, you know, whatnot. So there's been this, you know, there's this incredible moment of, um, uh, of rallying and coming together during this time to support and serve students. But what we're seeing as this unfolds um, and we head toward what will be the next 
temporary normal. I think that we're still quite a ways away from having a sense of, you know, the ways in which the world has been permanently changed and higher education has been permanently changed uh, by this crisis. But we are seeing a number, I would say an increasing number of institutions uh, stating clearly that they are doubling down on their student success work. They are not moving away from their efforts to, for example, remake remediation at scale to work better for students, to create clear, coherent, well-supported learning journeys for students, to ensure that advising uh, structures actually support and meet students where they are and provide uh, the supports that today's students need um, in order to be successful. Those kinds of priorities that were animating the student success movement uh, before uh, now, and it's true that those things were enormously difficult, whether it's DevEd redesign, pathways, transfer uh, improvements, um, but it's never been more important. And it is just uh, so clear as a, as a student success leader at a university in uh, Missouri said to me recently, you know, this crisis has revealed so starkly the challenges that we have known have been there, that we have been working on, uh, but that we really see now are the absolute center of the work that must be done for us. And if we're ever given a chance to go back to business as usual, we must not. Um, so we are encouraged that there's both a kind of, uh, we know that this is an exhausting, beleaguering time for, for everybody, for individuals, for communities, for institutions. But we also know that the work of uh, remaking and reimagining higher education to work better for today's students has also never been more important. Um, so there are a number mm. of specific things that we think about in there, but I'll stop. I'll stop for, with that for the moment. That, well, no, and that's a really that's a hopeful thought, which is which is helpful to keep in mind because I think so much of what you read and what you're hearing about these days is actually quite pessimistic, in terms of what's happening in higher ed and what what. I think you're suggesting is that this is really an opportunity for institutions to do some reflection about what they're learning about their students in like, the midst of this crisis and to make sure that you draw from that going forward and not lose sight of it as you're planning for your post-pandemic way of, of working and being as an institution. Absolutely. I think it's both about longer term planning and what this crisis is requiring of institutions uh, that um, that does have silver lining. Um, it is extraordinarily challenging. I don't want to suggest that what's facing institutions is uh, a good thing. I mean, this is in, in tremendously challenging time, but there are incredible opportunities here, both for longer term planning and resetting and prioritization of student success work and really doubling down on the things that we know are going to make the biggest difference for lowering barriers to students. But also for in the right now, I mean, we're hearing a number of stories of institutions that have just in the course of the last several weeks have uh, addressed serious policy issues, institutional policy issues that were negatively impacting students for years that they had trouble dealing with for years that they, you know, mm -hmm. essentially overnight or over the course of a few weeks were able to address. So, you know, one concrete example is a small dollar amount account holds on students' accounts, preventing students from registering, uh, you know, sort of creating the conditions for cross-silo collaboration between the bursar's office, between those who are dealing with the finances of the institution and those who are leading the student success work and looking at data about who's succeeding, who's failing, who's stopping out and why. 
and removing those accounts, hold, lowering barriers to students registering for and continuing their education. I mean, those are the kinds of policies, you know, that uh, that could be you could discuss them for years and many institutions have discussed them for years. And overnight, you know, most of the institutions that we are working with and know just eliminated those policies because it was so positively, clearly harmful in this moment to students. And now they have the opportunity coming out of the crisis to rethink those policies and yeah. to rethink uh, in general the way that they do business. Mm, indeed. Yeah, that's a that's a great example. So now let me ask you specifically about the role of faculty in uh, student success uh, efforts. You've or some have suggested that faculty uh, can be particularly resistant to whole college kinds of change efforts. And I I have heard from more than just a few provosts and presidents of of their challenges in trying to get faculty on board. You have mm -hmm. been a faculty member at a, more than more than one institution and you work a lot with faculty. So do you have any suggestions for how to effectively engage faculty in this kind of a, uh, an effort? Yes, absolutely. This is something that we think a lot about and something that I'm committed to continuing to learn about as I spend time with faculty and supporting faculty leadership of work. I think the first thing to recognize is that those who are closest to students that students interact with the most, that are that have the greatest impact on students, um, are uh, um, must not be viewed or painted with a single brush as uh, or labeled a problem. Because these are the people who bring passion every day from their disciplines, their expertise, uh, to the work of helping to support student learning. And their and without their commitment and creative energy. Um, most of the things that we want to see happen uh, for our students is not going to be successful in the long haul. Now, I think, so on the one hand, I think it's extremely important to approach the conversation about faculty as uh, uh, one based in uh, respect and appreciation for the, because many of the things that make faculty quote unquote difficult, right? So being critical, mm -hmm. Um, you know, those, those are great gifts uh, to an institution. These are how, you know, work can become stronger, right? So there are, there are a number of uh, assets that come with the academic mindset. On the other side of this, and this I will speak both from my own experience as a faculty member, but also my observations uh, from working with faculty all over the country, there are um, the norms of my discipline run at cross purposes in many ways with the student success imperatives of uh, facing institutions today. So for example, my discipline, and uh, many disciplines are like this, my discipline is very much steeped in a uh, notion of uh, faculty ownership of curriculum means I, I get to be on my own, doing my own thing as I see fit and that that is academic freedom. And anything short of that is a violation of my uh, interests. And I think that there, you know, for me, as I was thrown into the classroom and I love teaching and it gave meaning to my research um, when I was in the classroom, I was never, I was never asked to think about uh, where students were going to go uh, after my class, where they came from before they came to my class. Um, were my classes going to transfer and apply uh, if my students left to attend another institution. I was never asked to think about myself as part of a student's broader learning journey 
And I was never asked to think about the relationship between my discipline, my expertise, my subject matter, um, my commitments, and the necessity that faces the institutions that I work for of creating the conditions for greater student success. And so in some ways, many of the things that my discipline promised me uh, implicitly, uh, I realized, and, it's, and it, was, it has been a painful, you know, it was painful to realize this early on, but to internalize that I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have done so, that there are many you know, sort of promises from my discipline uh, implicitly that cannot be made good on except at the expense of students. And I will tell you a very just personal concrete example. There was a class that I taught that I loved. I just, it, it was called Power and Choice. And it was, I, and I still believe it was, a, you know, the content was terrific. Uh, it was about helping students critically interrogate power structures in our society, something I think is more important than ever uh, in our society. But I never, I, I never thought about whether the class transferred as uh, an elective or if it transferred as part of uh, core uh, curriculum. I didn't, I didn't consider that. And I think that there were a number of students who took that class that if they attended other institutions, probably lost time and money because I, that class didn't transfer. And if I had been asked to or required, frankly, to be in conversations with faculty in my discipline from other institutions or elsewhere, where we have broad transfer partnerships to better understand the impact of my decisions in the classroom on my students' ability to achieve their goals, the conversation mm -hmm. would have been very different, right? And so I think this is the way, this is one of the examples of the way in which large-scale student success work is profoundly countercultural for, for a number of academic disciplines. There's only there's one other thing I want to say about this, Melissa. And on the other side, okay. I will say that is, you know, faculty isn't one thing. There are, you know, the number of uh, adjunct faculty in this country. I've been both full time and adjunct faculty in my uh, career and uh, as a faculty member. And the experiences of contingent faculty are very different than the experiences of full time faculty. Um, and the complexities facing faculty in a changing world in which many feel beleaguered and feel uh, the sort of uh, a force toward deprofessionalization of their uh, disciplines and of their profession is extremely challenging for people. Um, it is emotionally challenging for people because our disciplines are our identities, our relationship to our subject matter and our, our identities as faculty members are very tied up in our sense of self and our values. And so as we watch what feels to many uh, like a sort of systematic move away from honoring those uh, professional norms, that can be emotionally difficult for people. But we have to remember that uh, the traditional structures that protected um, my ability as a faculty member to do whatever I wanted as I saw fit um, might not be consistent with the responsibilities that institutions have to their students. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a freefall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever-increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Bay Path University Doctorate in Higher Education Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input. 
and then we designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. If you've completed graduate level coursework in higher education, you may be able to complete the program in as little as three years. All coursework is online. Students receive an abundance of personalized support, both from their peers and from our expert faculty. We are now accepting applications for our October start. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step. Visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. approach your colleagues in the classroom to convince them uh, to make the kind of changes when you talk about remaking colleges to work better for students how are you going to get the faculty on board with you yeah so I would start by listening and learning from my faculty about the things that they are proudest of in their support to their students I think we can't mm -hmm. uh, underestimate we talk about faculty's loyalties to their disciplines but I think we mm. underestimate the depth of faculty commitment to their students. And so mm. if we meet faculty where they are, their passion for supporting their students, for extending their care and their passion for their discipline to their students, there's a whole lot of room for common ground and there's a whole lot of room for um, supporting different ways of practicing our craft and supporting students. So I think may, assuming, beginning with the assumption uh, that there is a lot to learn from faculty about the way that they support students, the way that they think about their discipline, begin by listening, start the conversation, meeting faculty where they are in their commitment to students. So high impact practices in teaching and learning, culturally, culturally responsive pedagogy, the effective use of technology in the classroom to support teaching and learning. None of these things, none of these things were part of my graduate school training. And, uh, and you know, I know that to create the conditions for us as faculty members to learn about the evidence around uh, human learning, to learn about cognitive science, to have strong, high-functioning relationships with instructional designers and curriculum experts, uh, to really take the time to unpack all of the things that faculty members do. It's one of the things, one of the exercises that we do with faculty is write down all the things that you do, every single thing that is a part of your job. And let's look at that list and talk about you know, what, what are the things that are essential to your job? What are the things that are expected of you? So I think, you know, if I were, how would I, how would I bring people along with me? I would start by listening. I would start by honoring their commitment to students. And then I would create opportunities for faculty to learn about and embrace the things that are known outside of their disciplines that they haven't been exposed to. And part of this, I think, is that uh, for many of us, um, so I will say faculty are experts and experts are enormously competent and our identity again is tied into our commitment to our disciplines and our expertise and our competence and when we are faced with new circumstances new environments uh, new kinds of students uh, that we may have never you know served before or an evolving world of work that we don't totally understand because it's beyond anybody's ability to completely understand 
it can uh, undermine and deprive and rob faculty of that sense of expertise and competence. And when people feel deprived of that, uh, it is very, very uh, hard on them emotionally and recognizing that mm -hmm. and providing the right kind of ongoing professional development and support that is truly meaningful to faculty, mm -hmm. I think is essential for the long-term um, benefits of ensuring that those who are closest to students are also empowered to own this work, right? Sure, yeah. And, it, and that goes back to what you said at the very beginning about not losing sight of the fact that this is a human process. Exactly. And that faculty come into this with a whole set of uh, human emotions and fears and hopes and dreams. And, and so to have that be front and center as you're going forward uh, sounds like a really, really important thing to never lose sight of. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let, let me switch gears a little bit. Uh, you've been active in the Guided Pathways movement since its very beginning. You, were, you played a very critical role, from what I understand, in the inception of the Guided Pathways movement. Can you say a little bit more uh, about what, what the movement is? What, is? what is the Guided Pathways movement? And why do you believe it is so important to all of these other things that you're talking about? Yes, sure. So um, I, was, I became involved in the Guided Pathways movement very early on when the early research came out from the Community College Research Center looking at where students were falling off, stopping out, dropping out, um, not persisting, not completing across the entire student life cycle from connecting with an institution to choosing a program of study to progressing through completion. And in this context, we're talking specifically at the beginning of the movement about two-year colleges, two-year institutions, community colleges. So it was also about then advancement in the labor market into the next level of education uh, through transfer into baccalaureate programs and beyond. And uh, I came into the work as a faculty engagement, um, from a faculty engagement perspective and commitment. Again, with this core uh, belief that without the active co-ownership and insights and expertise of faculty, uh, no large scale change work uh, aimed at supporting students more effectively is going to be successful over the long haul. And so at the beginning, um, I was present to learn about this, uh, sort of the data and what institutions were doing with it. And so for me, the very, core of the Guided Pathways movement. And I think there's a lot, there are a lot of misconceptions about what it is and is not. But for me, the fundamental core of Guided Pathways is institutions looking at colleges and universities, looking at the places where students fall off in large numbers and saying to themselves, yes, there are a lot of things that are outside of our hands. Life happens to our students. There are things that we can't prevent. Uh, our students have enormously complicated lives. And, you know, we, we hope that we sure hope they succeed sort of shifting from that mindset to one that says there are structures, practices, policies embedded in everything that we do that are contributing to these loss points that are, in fact, raising barriers to our students disproportionately. In fact, barriers uh, for low income students of color and first generation students, returning adults, students from historically minoritized populations, et cetera. So. We, as an institution, have a responsibility to take responsibility for the things that we can 
to make our learning journeys more coherent, to acknowledge that for many entering community college, and this is at the beginning of the movement, I think this has extended greatly into the four-year sector um, in the last several years, in the last decade. But as we look at what our students are actually experiencing, when we really look at our students and what's happening to them, they are experiencing college as a confusing maze, right? And we have a responsibility as an institution to clarify for them and to create the conditions for them to have a clear and coherent learning journey that is well supported. So for example, taking a course catalog that has 300 you know, programs and you look at all of these courses and which courses do I take, right? Um, to sort of mm -hmm. sort and organize how we present uh, programs of study to students so that at the beginning of a student's learning journey, they can say, okay, here are six or eight broad areas, career and academic areas. And I'm pretty sure I'm more of a physical sciences person than I am a humanities person. I, can, I know that much about myself coming into college. So I'm gonna explore over here, but I also want to take some classes here and there to learn more about what I should be doing or what's best for me as a program and to structure programs to study so that students are empowered to explore responsibly while also not losing time money, effort uh, in, in, um, in completing their credentials. And so along with that clear and coherent learning journeys, there's also this notion that historically advising, you know, you'd meet with your advisor once. I don't know if I ever met with an advisor, you know, meet with an advisor once a <laughs> semester. And then the next time you hear from an advisor, unless you're in an athletic program and then you get the <laughs> full support, you know, the next time you hear from an advisor is when you're on academic probation or when you're about to graduate. Uh, right. So change, right. shifting from that to, well, what does it mean to proactively advise students uh, to ensure that advisors are staying connected to and understand what's happening to students in order to uh, ensure that they get the support they need, the right academic advising about the right courses to take given their long-term goals, um, the right kinds of supports uh, when they run into challenges. We know that students are facing unprecedented levels of anxiety and depression in our country. We have, um, you know, a host of challenges facing students today in our society. So how can we structure our supports for our students in ways that keep us connected to them and help them persist through those lost points? And so for me, bottom line is Guided Pathways is about institutions taking responsibility for lowering barriers to students that we know have been created by policy practice, practices and structures that are longstanding. If I look at this from the perspective of the student and what I'm experiencing, um, you're, you're talking about an approach that's very fluid and where the different functions and services in the institution are working hand in hand so that what the student experiences is more seamless, right? Yes, exactly. Um, yep. And, and yet, I want to go back to, because previously you were talking about the problem with silos. And I think, you know, anybody who's worked on any college campus knows that silos can be very, uh, they're very prominent. Um, and, and so you have talked about the, the need for leaders, for professionals uh, at all levels to upskill in the art of silo spanning. And so can you kind of help connect the dots for us. So if, if an institution is going to be successful in creating the kind of seamless experience for students that you're advocating and that you would suggest is really important for student success, um, how, 
how do you build a climate and a culture that supports silo spanning that brings the silos brings the walls down between the different functions and uh, creates the kind of experience that you're you're suggesting is important yeah um, it's a great question and it's it is one of my um, favorite <laughs> topics and areas of work is this focus on cross silo collaboration and what it means to actually uh, to actually upskill in the art of silo spanning so I think what it looks like in practice and what it means is that um, so a couple of things um, so for most institutions full-blown restructuring to kind of force silo spanning is uh, is is out of the question it's uh, for many institutions it's costly confusing slow and rife with its own complications and whatnot and so we need to figure out how to help people work more effectively given the various structures that do exist right and so Silo spanning is really a world of bridging and gluing. And so, you know, first, I think it really does require a kind of adaptive view of leadership that is relationship driven, that we understand that people who live in different parts of an institution, advisors and faculty, for example, are driven by, by very different imperatives. They have very different kind of cultural norms in their professions. And, for, you know, as I was saying before, for academics, for faculty, there is a broader set of cultural dynamics uh, around the academy and around the imperative of disciplines that really shape uh, people's values and actions. And so when you think about the very different uh, worlds that people live in, the work to be done is for us about moving beyond sort of casual cooperation or creating connections to forging much deeper forms of collaborations, uh, co collaboration that is long-term relational and focused on clear shared goals. So you could look at cross-silo collaboration or cooperation as something, you know, we want to get people to, faculty and advisors to cooperate. Well, you could have short-term transactional communication in which faculty and staff independent goals continue to, you know, sort of operate unchecked, but you're unlikely to create that seamless experience for students. For example, a faculty senate president that I am working with at an institution in Texas she was saying, you know, before we, you know, before our institution got into guided pathways, I hadn't actually had a conversation uh, with advisors, uh, with an advisor here in a long time about sort of the broader goals of our institution. You know, every now and then I'll encounter advisors in these various ways, but to begin to forge those relationships where I actually really need to know what it is that they do to support our students. And I realized in conversation that they didn't really know what I was doing <laughs> to sort of support our students. <laughs> and the fact that I can pick up a phone and have worked over the last three years to build these relationships means that so that our students are not falling through the cracks in the way that they were. And again, this for me, this goes back a little bit to this idea that when I was a faculty member, nobody ever asked me to think about what happened to a student before they came to me or after they left. That wasn't my job. My job was to, you know, deliver the learn, you know, sort of support, deliver the content, support the learning, have the learning experience, and ideally make them passionate about the things that I'm passionate about, right? Um, but the idea that I actually had a responsibility and should have been supported structurally by my institution in the form of real opportunities for connection, ongoing learning, collaborative learning professional development for me to understand more about the advising function at the institution, space for me to learn from and be supported in building relationships with advisors. 
you know, that was not the norm uh, when I was a faculty member. And, um, and again, this is why the clear vision anchored in a focus on students and the student experience is so important from the top, because that is the common, the common firm ground on which advisors and faculty and staff and others stand in order to build those relationships over time. So I'm talking here only about faculty and advisors, but when we think about, I mean, think about the broader array of functions within an institution, the back office systems and processes, uh, the technology infrastructure, the information functions of the institution, the business and operations components of the institution, those also historically have been very siloed uh, from conversations about student success and you know, sort of innovation, either in teaching and learning or student supports. So the silo spanning has to happen across multiple silos and it is ongoing work. And I've said you know, in a couple of different uh, kind of ways, I think this, you know, this idea that this work is not work that you do and then it's done. It's the work of becoming um, an institution. And you know, one of my favorite um, uh, folks in the Guided Pathways movement is Ed Bowling, and he was a leader in the Guided Pathways work in North Carolina. And he was the first person that I heard talk to institutions and faculty and staff together in these meetings, in these cross-silo meetings, about this work of becoming, of becoming the institution that you need to be for your, inst for your students, and that this is not um, you know, it's not a let's handle this one thing and then move on. It's let's learn how to do our work differently together in service of that seamless experience. What you are talking about is so critically important for anybody that cares about expanding access and creating an educational experience and pipeline that will truly move the dime in this country. And um, I'm just I'm I'm so uh, grateful for the work that you you and your team are doing and um it's it's quite encouraging but not not easy work um in in any in any way so let me end uh with uh one final question and this is a question we like to ask all of our guests on ingenious you and that question is this what do you see ahead for higher education that you think we all need to be paying more attention to? What needs to be on the radar yep. and why? All right. So it's a huge question and I love it. And I'm going to get very specific here. If I were to say, here are two places, for example, where significant progress needs to be made to secure the uh, health of the institutions and to support the kind of student success that we absolutely need to see in this country if we're going to have a middle class in the future. I would say developmental education redesign, reform of remediation at scale is the one of the key places where significant ongoing activity and work and effort needs to be undertaken. And on the other side of that, I would say improving seamlessness of credit transfer. And by credit transfer, I mean applicability of credits uh, from one institution to another toward a degree. And so transfer, tackling transfer and uh, remaking remediation, I think for me are the two biggest high, uh, sort of high priority areas nationally for access oriented institutions that are committed to extending genuine upward mobility uh, to their students. So Allison, thank you so very much for being our guest today. Your insights are very helpful. And I know that our listeners 
will take a great deal away from from what you've shared as well as uh, be inspired by the work that you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on, Melissa. Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Join me next week for another Ingenious You conversation with author, entrepreneur, and business strategy expert, Bob Atkins. As CEO and founder of the higher ed consulting firm, Gray Associates, Bob has pioneered the use of rigorous research, data analytics, and advanced analytical techniques to help colleges and universities make smarter decisions. Just as the coronavirus has disrupted our lives personally, it has also changed the context in which our institutions reside. According to Atkins, colleges and universities need the right real-time data now more than ever to understand just what is happening on a local level and to make good decisions about how to respond to our new context. Join us for this conversation to hear Bob's insights about which data need to be on your radar and how to make better decisions to ensure your institution is still standing on the other side of the pandemic. For now, thank you for listening. Be well and stay strong.